Good morning, church. Good morning. Well, like um, just mentioned, we'll be uh, continuing our, our time. We'll be wrapping up our time in uh, Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus, found in Ephesians chapter 3, um, there at the end of the chapter, starting at verse 14. I'm, re- I'm reading from the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. This is the word of the Lord. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you're being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I, um, I love making forts with my boys. I love going into the, to the hallway cupboard and pulling out all of the sheets. That, that I, earlier in the week, folded, <laughs> spreading them out all around the living room and, and just enjoying a time where we get to assemble something together. Um, usually what happens is the boys come running with their different supplies. They come running with all of their stuffed animals and their pillows and their blankets, and, and they join in on this process of building forts together. I typically get carried away in these moments, that it becomes a little bit more and elaborate and more elaborate as, as we're building together. But the, the, the intention and the motivation of building these forts together is that we would have a space where we can dwell together, where we could sit with one another. And, and, and the idea is, is that how this fort is built together, the, the method in which it's built together, is meant to dictate then how we are going to be together in that space. That the fort is built with generosity and fun, and then that will inform how we will be in that fort together. What we've been navigating here in this prayer, and reflecting on this prayer that Paul lifts for the church in Ephesus, is that God has an ongoing building project. One in which he is bringing together diverse and different peoples, uniting them together. And we we find that there's great joy in his work, that this is something that he takes delight in. And his work is done to show off his creativity and his wisdom. Just a few verses before this prayer here in Ephesians chapter 3, you'll read this in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10. It says that so that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Humans build vacations around seeing architecture. Going to see the Eiffel Tower, the Great Wall of China, Machu Picchu. 
You think about the fact how many dads have taken the family road trip on just these detours so that way they can see the world's largest ball of yarn or the world's largest garden gnome or the world's largest rocking chair. We love seeing buildings. We love standing before something that has been built by human hands and just be wowed by it and inspired by it. And here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, what we discover is that angels come to look at what God has built. And they're wowed. They're floored. They're stunned. They love to peer into what God has assembled together. And what God has assembled together that shows his matchless, unrivaled wisdom is the church. He's built the church. And that the place of God's dwelling, this built-together temple that wows and stuns the angels, is meant to be filled with the fullness of his character and his nature. That what he has built is meant to embody who he is. Paul's prayer here, um, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is is one run-on sentence. Verse 14 through through 19 is, is one sentence. And I came across a commentary that I think playfully created their own run-on sentence to describe what Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. It says this, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is that God would strengthen them in their inner person, resulting in Christ effectively dwelling in them for the purpose that they, having been rooted and grounded in love, might be able to comprehend with all the saints the wonders of Christ's love, resulting in their experiential knowledge of Christ's love that surpasses all knowledge, for the final purpose of being filled up with God's moral character, which reflects God's character. This run-on sentence, if summarized, would tell us that God gives us new strength to swim in the vast waters of his love, and together, in these waters, we are to be made like him. We are to be filled with his fullness. The temple that he is building, how we live together, is meant to match his character and his nature. So if you go back to this prayer on the screen, Paul prays this prayer and then he wraps it up with praise. He enters into a doxology, and, and what, he, what he does after this prayer, he, he, he just erupts into celebration. And he says, now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Contextually, what Paul is doing here is saying is we're giving praise to a God who not only brought down the wall of hostility, but who is actively empowering us to love one another. 
What is God doing that is abundantly far more than we could ever ask or imagine? He's causing the church to be like him. That's what he's doing. What is abundantly far more than we could ever ask or imagine is that the nature of Christ can fill the church. We can embody, we can express his character, his nature, to a degree that would absolutely stun us. He can change us. He can transform us to be like him. That which humanity is unable to do. Look over the pages of human history and you will find that humanity is not able to live together. They are not able to dwell. We are not able to dwell one another with one another. And what we are erupting in celebration over is we are saying by the power at work within us to a degree that will absolutely stun the church can actually live together. The church can be united. The church can dwell together. The church can have life together. And so that's why this, this, this prayer, this doxology of praise that Paul lifts up here in verses 20 and 21, how he ends chapter 3 actually is a pivot point. And when you read chapter 4, what does he begin to do? He begins to say, now therefore, this is how you live. The connection in Paul's mind is that, listen, God is able to empower us to live differently, to express the fullness of who he is to one another. Therefore, let's live differently. Let's be together differently. Let's be a people that actually express his love and his generosity and his hospitality to one another. If we were to be filled with his fullness, then the direct application of that is that we live differently by the power at work within us. We'll actually be able to live different lives. A while ago, I read a book by Laura Berenger and Scott McKnight. It was a, it's a book called, A Church Called Tov. Tov is the Hebrew word for goodness. And, and they, wrote, they wrote this book because what they've encountered in their different places of, of leadership and, and working with churches is they've recognized that so often is that there can permeate into the life of church communities a toxic culture. But, but the pursuit of the church, how we are with one another, should be a culture of goodness. And they take us back to the, to the garden. And there in the garden, what does God do? Is that when he creates, there is something that he says over creation. What does he say? It is good. That the context of God creating an environment for humanity to dwell in was a culture of goodness, was an environment 
of goodness. And then when he creates humanity, he looks at us and he looks at us and says, it is very good. We are meant to be a people that embody goodness. That's how we're meant to relate with one another. We're meant to relate with one another in, the, in, in a culture, in a space, in an environment of goodness. And I want to spend a fair amount of time examining their exhortation to the churches for what it would look like to nurture habits of goodness. And the hope here is in alignment with what Paul pray, is praying for the church, that a church community would strive after loving each other well. That a church would strive after really knowing the fullness of God. I don't remember where, but one of the sci-fi books that I, I read um, relatively recently had this comment about the ruling people. It says, as they pursued being great, they forgot to be good. His spirit is enabling us beyond anything that we could ever ask or imagine to have life together. Because of Jesus, we can be friends. We can be friends that are good. We can be a people that dwell together, that have life with one another, that actually express to each other the fullness of who he is. So let's go through their list. The first one that, that they talk about is nurture empathy. I'll read a quote on each one of these points from the book, and here's one of their, when they're talking about empathy. So the church is designed by God to be a tov culture, a goodness culture, filled with empathy and compassion. The church is designed by God to wrap its arms around the poor, the oppressed, and the needy of this world because, like Jesus, we want to alleviate their pain. Jesus is known as a friend to sinners. How does a holy, perfect God become known as a friend to sinners? And I think it's because they saw in him someone who was joyfully drawn to them. In, in the Gospels, you'll come across this story, and it says this, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by his name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be in your, a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quick, quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house with great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He is gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. Quick observation in this story is simply this. Jesus tells us that the reason for his incarnation is that the Son of Man came to seek. At the core of who he is, is a seeker. He literally couldn't be kept 
away from sinners. At the core of his nature, he is filled with compassion and love for the lost. At the core, he is moved by the brokenness around him. And actually, what you'll discover, right, in the, the well-known, uh, the most well-known Bible verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But right after that, we're told, but he didn't, the son of man didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. But the motivation of his coming to us is his compassion. And the church is called to move with that same compassion that our hearts would be sensitive, that our hearts would be filled with delight and joy for the people around us, that we would love our neighbors. We would love the people around us. We would love the people in this room. We would be, we would be filled with empathy and compassion for the people around us. The next one is that we, a community of Tov would, would nurture grace. An element of grace, of a grace-shaped culture is space or room. Room to learn and make mistakes. Room for growth and for forgiveness. In a fear-inducing power culture, mistakes can prompt verbal abuse and lead to status degradation or public shaming. Fear can overwhelm or undermine the Christian virtue of forgiveness. In a grace-shaped culture, space is allowed for siblings to discover their giftedness and their calling. Space and grace is allowed for siblings to make mistakes as they grow in their giftedness. And there is space to forgive others for their mistakes. Listen to the words immediately following this prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. Again, Paul erupts in this doxology of praise. Now to him who is able to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. He, he prays that, and then his immediate words after that are this. Therefore I, a prisoner, for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for, for uh, you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. The direct application of God doing exceedingly abundantly above all we could ever ask or imagine is that we make space for one another. That we would operate with grace. I was at Costco a couple of weeks ago with the boys, and there was a couple that was right in front of all of the ground uh, meat. There was the ground bison and the ground, the ground beef that was there, and they were sitting there talking with one another because they couldn't decide what they wanted to get. I knew exactly what I wanted to get, so I came up to them and said, do you mind if I just grab a packet of the ground beef? And, and the man turned to me, he said, yeah, go ahead. And then right before I went and grabbed, he then said, what would you do if I said no? <laughs> mm. 
I mean, the boys are sitting there right in the cart, so I have to be somewhat like Christ. <laughs> and I, I said, I'd wait patiently, and I'd let you sit with your response. And he laughed, and he smiled, and he said, that's a great response, man. What, what was on my mind that week was this quote that I brought to us a, a few weeks ago from Dallas Willard. He said, the spiritually mature person will look at some wrongdoing and say, why would anyone want to do that? Let's bless instead of curse. They can do that because their mind is turned constantly to the world of God and God's presence with them. What, what we need to offer one another are grace-filled responses. We make space for each other. We allow each other to grow. That what we would offer one another is what we hope Christ is constantly offering to us. The space to make mistakes and find yet again his forgiveness and his empowering. The next, the next uh, point which they bring up is, is that a, a circle of tove puts people first. The circle of tove begins with when a church sees people as people and treats them as people by nurturing them to become what God designed them to be, people with names and histories and stories, people who are doing well and people who are not people who are recovering from church abuse, people who've had surgeries and sicknesses, people who are aging, people who are rich and poor and everything in between, people who are wounded and in need of healing, people who are unemployed and underemployed, people who need encouragement or tangible assistance. Came across a quote a while ago from William Temple where he just simply says this, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. We exist for people. That's why we're here. We gather with a motivation for our life to be a gift to others. We gather to learn other people's names and stories. We seek to show interest for others, to put others' needs before our own, to show hospitality to strangers. The church exists for others so that we might demonstrate the fullness of God to the world around us. We exist for people. We exist for people. Community of Tove tells the truth. Berenger and McKnight reflect on the Jewish celebration of Yom Kippur. In this, what they discover is, or what they observe, is that there's a commitment to confession, repentance, sacrifice, purification, and forgiveness. 
they were at the heart of the Jewish culture. Along with the ordinary run-of-the-mill sacrifices connected to sins, Israel set aside an entire calendar event to remember and confess their sin and to get right with their tov, God. In our day, when we are called to confess our sin to God and not to one another, the confession means to admit, to name, to describe, and to own up to what we have done. We are reconciled with God through our confessions to attempt to move on past our sin without truth-telling confession is to cheapen God's grace. Look at the news, and you're bound to hear stories of organizations and businesses and nonprofits and unfortunately churches that have been defined by lying, covering up, and suppressing the truth. Every parent knows to be suspicious when the house gets too quiet. And the reason that they're suspicious is because they know that it's very likely that their child doesn't want to be found. And the reason that that child does not want to be found is because they are likely up to no good. We hide. Human tendency is to excuse, to cover up, to suppress. But the church of God is called to live in the light, to not be a people that hide. That followers of Christ are called to be a people that live in reality. That are actually able to come and to say, I confess. I acknowledge. I lament. I am sorry. Because we know the fullness of God's grace expressed to us. So we are people that live in the light. We don't give a fake version of ourselves to Jesus and hope to see transformation. We come before him and say, this is who I am, and I confess who I am. And it's there that we experience the fullness of his grace and his mercy. In the chapter following this prayer, this praise of doxology, Paul tells the church this, so stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth for we are all parts of the same body. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. To be filled with the fullness of God is for there to be transformation in our words. That the outflow of our hearts would be his goodness, would be his character. And that's, that would be the words that we offer to one another. Let's keep going. The, the, that we would be people that nurture justice. Loyalty to a charismatic leader, the reputation of a ministry, and a church's brand are major obstacles to doing the right thing. 
Toxic cultures breed misplaced and corrupted loyalty. Tove cultures promote doing the right thing even when it requires a seemingly disloyal, seeming disloyalty to the charismatic pastor, the celebrity church, and the inner circles of power. What we have to recognize is human tendency is to show favoritism to those with more power. We ask each other about our celebrity encounters in our world. We don't typically come up to one another and ask each other about the encounters we've had with people that are living on the streets. Our loyalties often get skewed towards those who are powerful rather than to doing what is right. You read the book of James and what you'll find it is that it isn't so innocent. It isn't such an innocent act as you give the rich man the good seat. The reason it isn't so innocent is because in that act, you lose sight of your brother who is poor. Frank Herbert, in the book of Dune, <laughs> writes that one of the four things that a world is supported by is the justice of the great. That the great need to use their greatness to do what is right. And what you'll find in this letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus is that one of the points in which he's wrapping up his letter is to say, husbands, love your wives. Dads, don't provoke your children. Masters, treat your slaves with respect and fear. And what he's doing there is to, to show us that to be filled with the fullness of God is to say that we will use our points of power to be a blessing to the people around us. I would just watch Spider-Man, so you know the saying, and it's on my mind, that with great power comes great responsibility. What the kingdom of God will tell us is, if you're first, be last. If you're great, be a servant. That's what we are meant to embody. We're meant to nurture service. We avoid being drawn into the circle of celebrity, heroism, and self-congratulatory giving. And we can avoid these pitfalls only by creating a genuine service culture that permeates our lives and the life of the church. A culture in which ordinary actions of service are the norm, in and out of season, without the need of congratulations or acclaim. Tove is ordinary. The very concept of tove goodness is rooted in the ordinary. We can do good things, certainly, but good implies an ongoingness of good things to the point that they become, well, ordinary. I'm going to keep on, on going for the sake of time. The last one is to nurture Christ-likeness. A simple quote from the book here is this. The purpose of the church is not numerical growth or filling seats. The pur purpose of the church is conformity to Christ. That is the sum total of God's plan. Let me get back to reflecting on this prayer of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. The Spirit of God is working in us to make us like Christ to a degree 
that is beyond anything that we could ever ask or imagine. Christ-likeness becomes the ethos of our community. That is what we are after. The fullness of his character becomes what we experience, embody, and express. We're to exhort one another to Christ-likeness. Are we becoming like Jesus? That's our aim here. That's our goal. Are we becoming like Jesus? Contextually for faith, here's how we're going to nurture Christ-likeness. Our pursuit is to follow well, love well, and serve well. This will be what we revolve around over the next year and in the years to come. We're going to seek to follow, to love, and to serve. And so for in the year, this year ahead, and again, in the years to come, we're going to consider our rhythms and our practices. We're, we're going to constantly be revolving around this. We're going to actively learn the character and nature of Jesus. That's what we're after, to know him. To know him, to know the, 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 the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of his love. And so next week, we're launching a sermon series, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And in that space, we're just going to be asking, what does it look like to grow in an awareness of who Jesus is? We're going to love. And what that means is we're going to actively swim in the culture of his love, the breadth, the, 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 the length, the height, the depth, to know his love, and, and for that knowing to actually become transformative to how we treat and interact with one another. And so in March, we're going to launch the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course. And it's going to all be around how are we looking to, to grow in our love for one another? How do we relate with each other? How is it that Christ's fullness is permeating who we are and it's, and it's actually tangibly changing how we're interacting with, the, with, the, with each other? And we're going to serve. We're going to seek the redemption and renewal of our neighborhoods. We're going to be actively loving our neighbors. We're going to be serving local partners. We're going to be supporting and giving and showing up for our global partners. And we're going to talk about what does it look like to be faithfully present to, to, the, to the block that we live on, to the shops that we visit, to the, to the streets that we take our evening strolls around, to the parks that we go to with our kids. What does it look like to faithfully embody the presence of Jesus in the world around us. Our pursuit is to say, how do, we, how do we become more like Jesus? How do we know him? How do we express who he is to one another? And how do we embody his fullness to the world around us? Brittany, if, Pastor Brittany, if you'd come back up here.
Church, let's pray. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that Faith Community Church may be strengthened in our inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith as we are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that faith community might have the power to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that we might be filled with the fullness of God. Spirit of the living God, thank you for empowering us to be a different, new, and united people. We pray that you would continue that good work of making us look more and more like your son, Jesus. Lord, our desire is to know you. Our one aim as a community and personally is to be after you, is to seek you and your goodness above all else. You you are who our hearts are after. And again, I pray, empower us in our pursuit of you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, would you stand with me?
like the cross. So we give you praise and we thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are indeed doing exceedingly far above anything that we could ask or imagine. All to your glory. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, we go in peace this week to follow Jesus, to love him, and to love the world that he has sent us to, to serve all just as Christ Jesus has served us. So go in peace. We love you. We look forward to seeing you downstairs in the courtyard and back here again next Sunday.